welcome to the Got Work to Do podcast. I'm Brandy, if you don't remember me. Um, it's week 10 of winter term, two weeks until spring break. Woot. Um, and today is the last podcast of winter term, and I have some amazing guests joining me today. I have Scott Emery, who is the Director of IT Relations, and Chrysanthemum Hayes, Associate Director of Institutional Analytics and Reporting. Say hi, y'all. Hello. Hey. <laughs> I'm going to give them a chance to give a better introduction, and then we're going to go ahead and get started if we want to start with Mum. Sure. Um, so I am Chrysanthemum Hayes. Everyone around here calls me Mum. I uh, work in institutional analytics and reporting. A lot of people think I'm just the data person, so which is pretty <laughs> cool. And I introduce myself. I'm like, just data. That's what I do. Um, a little bit about me. I've worked at Oregon State for uh, eight years now. And something some people don't know about me um, is that I grew up, uh, but a quarter of my life was spent in a small fishing town in Mexico. Oh, wow. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Also, eight years, same here. Oh, nice. Went like July or? Uh, September. September 2011. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Scott? Yeah. So I'm Scott Emery, Director of IT Relations and University Information and Technology. Uh, I have been here for going on seven years. It'll be seven years this summer. Nice. Um, and a little bit about what that job entails, since I get asked that question a lot, what is mm. a director of IT relations? Um, works in, a, uh, in an environment like we have that's very distributed. We have colleges and departments and Central have um, separate teams. Uh, we have OSU Cascades and Hatfield and the Portland Center. And so a big part of my job is to primarily, it's primarily the human side of IT and making sure that um, our IT employees and teams are working under a shared vision and that they're connected and we're avoiding duplication. Um, so that's a little bit about what I do. Nice. And we're going to talk about the human side of technology really today. And so our topic a little bit is connected to the um, campaign theme of transforming our future. And specifically, I wanted to talk to Mum and um, Scott about technology and social justice in their relationship. And so to get started, I, I asked, I want to ask, um, how do you personally define social justice? And um, basically, what does that look like for you? So for me, that looks like a complete um, missing of bias um, when it comes to power and voice and protection. And I think anytime we hear someone say, oh, we've never had or that's a first of, mm. um, those are indications that we could take a closer look at issues of social justice. And um, one of my favorite movies lately um, was On the Basis of Sex. And I think it really did a good job of pointing out that protection and that voice. And when it's one person, why why is it a, a thing? And then when it's another person, it's completely not. And so I try to pay attention to that. And on um, for my work, we do a lot on the people side of data. And we're always thinking about the humans who need the data and the humans behind the data. Um, and so there's a lot of social justice wrapped up in there in terms of who's there, how they're visible, and um, how the information gets used. Great. Scott? Yeah, the way I would, um, when I was thinking about this question, so um, I feel like it's the way in which human rights manifest themselves within a given society um, and how that society views what's just and unjust. And I think it's it's important to note that that, um, that feeling of what's just and unjust can evolve over time, right? And there's a lot of influencers that play into that. Um, so that, that that's what comes to mind for me when I think about social justice. Yeah. Um, I have both of your definitions and, and what that looks like, specifically when thinking about data, who's who's visible, but also who's missing, um, and the, the thought of social justice being uh, always evolving, right? Like mm -hmm. it's never, 
Um, there's never a stagnant moment in social justice. Mm-hmm. I think there's a point, and sometimes here at the university and, uh, and elsewhere, where we feel like if we've checked that box, then that box is no longer needed or no longer done, when in fact it just means that the next step needs to happen or the next community that uh, we haven't thought about needs to be uh, brought into the spotlight. And um, I've always thought of social justice as um, how it's been defined in some of the books as like a, um, a process, a vision, and a goal. Um, mm-hmm. Once you get to the goal, the process and vision changes, so you get to another goal and then so forth and so on. And so it's, um, it's probably why it's connected to my life's work in that sense <laughs> is that it's going to take an entire lifetime to, to accomplish many goals. Like it's not just one mm-hmm. goal. So yeah, I like both of those definitions. And so in thinking about the definitions, um, technology itself is a very broad term. <laughs> and so when I when I brought the two of you on, I was like, oh, man, technology, like how? I don't know if I could define technology in the same way I could define social justice. And so I wanted to maybe think about defining it within the work you do at OSU. And Scott gave a little bit of, I'm actually you both have really talked about um, how your work in technology is defined at Oregon State. But maybe the question is how would you define it more in the in your definition of social justice? Hmm. Um, well, I guess just talking about technology first, I'm going to kind of jive on the first question that you asked. So, um, I mean, certainly it's the tools that people use that mm-hmm. help us as a university be competitive, um, that allow us to advance our goals and promote education and allow those, you know, the, those business processes to happen. Um, so, but, but then it gets into, like, why are those things important? We have a lot of tools around here. So yeah. why is technology important? And I just feel like technology, it's like water. It seeps into mm. everything that happens here, right? Um, when I think about uh, Oregon State University has Strategic Plan 4.0, and right. we have four goals and 20 actions within that that strategic plan. I, I, I've looked at each one of those goals and each one of those actions, and, and, you, and technology plays a role in each one of those things to me. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, for me, one of the things that ties them together is this notion of progress. And if we are moving towards a socially progressive or a socially just society, culture, um, we're making progress as as a group. And I think if we're using technology effectively, we're also making progress. And I think they do connect in many ways um, because you can't have people without technology or technology without people. It's the other way. You can't have technology (laughs) without people. I was like, wait, that's the wrong way. Um, And so you have an infusion of wherever the society or the people who are in control of the technology or operating the technology or advancing the technology, you have their biases, you have their lenses that are affecting how that technology is then infiltrating the rest of the the society or the school or or whatever the area is and in the technology sphere that that I sit um, is really more on the data and the numbers and the information about people and the way that gets interpreted and the lenses through which then we we make decisions because of that information I mean that just connects so closely with with the conversation of the day with the priorities with being a, a a campus that's interested in diversity, equity, and inclusion as it's defined today, which may look different tomorrow, which right. may look different in mm-hmm. 10 years. But we do the best with what we can, and we try to keep that at the forefront of the work that we do. Mm. Yes. Very good. I'm trying to think of 
now that I've heard this, I'm like, man, the, the questions I'm asking you about may may be different than what I'm thinking through right now. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> well, can, can I can I jump yeah, in a little bit? So something that that Mum was just talking about made me think about how technology is used to sort of to make that progress happen, right? Um, you know that. Technology has played a really big role lately in social movements and, Mm -hmm. you know, creating new opportunities for expression, for organization, for communication. Uh, I'm thinking about the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter. There's, you know, um, hashtagging within, you know, social media platforms. I mean, it's it's enabled these kinds of things to happen. And um, I don't know that we've completely tapped all the ways that we use technology at OSU. You know, know, again, thinking about that connection between social justice and and technology. Um, I, I mean, I, I'll just share. I was uh, I was on on Instagram just uh, a couple days ago, and Brandy knows. Well, actually, you both know I'm a big fan of Janet Jackson on yes, the side, right? Quite on the side. Okay, yeah. I don't know that's if it's on the side, but pretty, yes, might might not be present. completely on the side. That's that's true. But there's this uh, there's this guy Gil Doldalow who's the choreographer for Janet mm-hmm. Jackson, and he was live streaming. And he was just, you know, sitting in his chair and I guess it was his living room and um, and comments were just streaming in. And I was sending comments in and I was having this conversation with this person. And I was just thinking, wow, this is a really good example of mm. how social media can be used to connect with people. Right. And, you know, I guess just just coming back to how I mean, how would that apply within a university environment? I mean, we could think of a number of different ways. Well, yeah, I think um, there's ways that it apply already. Like um, if you think about any of the rallies or demonstrations or protests that students have held on campus, they've all been spread through Facebook, specifically mm-hmm. Facebook events, like a literal Facebook event for the CGE rally that happened last week. Hap- like that's how they got yeah. folks connected. They're, the work that students are doing specifically around student activism at, at the university is is uh, streamed through Facebook, through, I don't know how many students use Twitter anymore, but through Instagram in those spaces to connect with each other, to voice their thoughts and opinions, um, and to really be able to have a community that they may not be able to always see um, face-to-face. And so no, I, I think the university, specifically our students, um, utilize social media and social movements uh, more than than anybody else at the university, obviously. Um, But I also think about it in ways of what the office, what Office of Institutional Diversity is trying to do a little bit more of. So we have our um, listening sessions this week about safety, about public safety um, on campus for the upcoming year, I guess. Um, And so how do we utilize social media to really have those conversations? We at least utilize it to promote it socially um, through Facebook, um, maybe Twitter. But we also like create a website uh, so folks can leave comments there. It's very similar to when we did the Building in Place name uh, mm-hmm. workshops, mm-hmm. gosh, three years ago. Already. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, wow. that feels like a long time ago. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we did social media campaign for that, but we really utilized um, a website that we created to give all the information to make sure that the research that had been done by scholars were available online, that anybody could send uh, their opinion in via the website and note that we would um, take those and be a part of the data process that we utilized at the end of the of our six, after our six engagement sessions, that the president's email, once he decided, was not only just sent through email, but it was, actually, it was on that website. So we created basically a hub mm-hmm. of information 
um, so folks can know about it. I think the one thing that you can't do um, in things like that is have um, have it live streamed. That loses it loses a lot of of momentum and loses mm-hmm. community. Like that's the one that's the one place I think technology can build community, but it can also take it away. And so it's very um, it has to be a balance of mm-hmm. how you utilize specifically social media or just um, technology through um, the internet specifically in social movements. Mm-hmm. It's almost like I think something like that would have to happen within. Can I say, I mean, like, not just a safe place. I know we had the the instance a couple of years ago um, where we were doing something like that live streaming. And some of the comments that were streaming mm-hmm. in from the public were mm-hmm. um, hostile yeah. uh, in nature. And then but, you're thinking of the speak out. Yeah. The yes, speak out. that was the one. The speak out yeah. was definitely that moment of um, it was like the stu- our students were were sharing the the um, racial inequities that specifically that they experienced in the classroom and simultaneously being um, targeted online and being able to point this out as they're talking about what's going on for them. Like, this is exactly it. It's just happening now in real time. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying, too, about um, with the social media and having it become more part of um, the community and the conversations and the things there, and then that's the outside the classroom pieces that are, I think, heavily connected with technology or it's becoming kind of one in the same or it's just part of part of that interaction. And then I think, too, about within the classroom where we just got that email about how it's time to prepare that if we need to, mm-hmm. everybody have a flipped classroom um, or, a, sorry, the modality changes to right. be online. Like we have Zoom and we have uh, Canvas and we have all of these other technologies. And what's interesting to, to think about is, um, well, for me at least, is there's just the movement of the information or what was happening from one platform to the other. And then there's also sort of this pause or this opportunity to start thinking about it differently or infuse a little bit more of a contemporary or, um, it, you know, rather than just take the content that may or may not be an equitable content or something that's thinking about all of the learners and then putting it into a new environment that's exactly the same. Like, are we just repeating right. the thing? Mm-hmm. Or we have this opportunity with these these different platforms with this different way of interacting. I mean, even doing this podcast is, I think, a good example. Like, yeah. We're getting yeah. this out yeah. through technology. All of this is right. just technology. Yeah. Um, and there's data about our voices. Um, <laughs> and, and I, I that's exciting to me. And I think it's also overwhelming for people. Um, and so maybe we're just moving from the, the analog to a digital mm-hmm. when we really could be pausing and saying, what is this opportunity and how can we make this a little more, me- bit more meaningful, more impactful? How can we do more advanced, more? And mm-hmm. I, I think, I know Scott, you talked about that. We talk about that in our work sometimes yeah. too. Like how do we just take this moment and do something a little bit more powerful with it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good thought specifically of thinking about if, um, uh, COVID-19 decides to infiltrate our lives a little bit more. Like, why why wouldn't we push forward? Why wouldn't we make progress? Why wouldn't we do something new, even in this moment of crisis, right? Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I don't think any of us are thinking of it that way, right, <laughs> at the well, moment. Maybe you two are. Yeah. And maybe that's that's a good start for There's us to like push that through. Underway for that, yeah. So we'll see what ends up happening for, for us here on Corvallis. Yeah. Yeah, OSU. Stay tuned. 
Right. Stay tuned. <laughs> Hopefully, I'm sure in your spring series, you'll, you'll touch back about that. Right. Like, quick like, update. Right. Just so you know, we're still here. Um, well, this does lead me to at least part of the questioning that I had, um, talking about social movements and how social media has has um, helped them increase their platform. I also think safety and security also have a role to play in it. And when I was thinking about this question, I was actually thinking about how um, the state of Oregon um, for for a little bit would um, monitor um, folks who utilize Black Black Lives Matter as the hashtag and, and were part of the movement in Portland. And so they were actually monitoring their, their social media accounts and things like that. And so like safety and security in the sense of how do folks who utilize the platform to push social media are surveilled and safety and security in the sense of how we would probably normally think about it in the sense of our data is out there, um, our, our personal lives are, are out there. I'll give like this is this mm. going to be a random story. So um, I was watching Doctor Who and that's how all my stories start out. Right. And they had this episode about um, this man who is the head of a um, major um, global multimedia um, like company and who um, whose governments have have contracted to help them with their own safety and security needs and. They, they know all the data to every mobile phone, um, mm. all your internet stuff, everything, and was going to launch a virus through, basically through the phone system that allowed them to take over your bodies. So, yeah. It, wow. Sci-fi. Okay. So there's a, there is a little bit of a leap. But the, thought, the thing he said is just like, you have given us permission to learn everything about your lives your date of birth, mm-hmm. your social security number, your credit card information. We know what you look like. We know how many people are in your family. Like, it was just like, ooh, it like gave me a moment of like, oh, God. Scary. <laughs> I didn't want to think about like, technology that way, but we we have. And so like, where is the safety and security when we tell folks, uh, when people tell us like, oh, well, you do this two-factor authentication and you'll be safe, mm-hmm. but you still have all my data. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it- it's, it's scary. I guess where, where my head was going as you were sharing that was um, I, so I read an article recently about um, how technology has in some ways made some um, communities safer, but, in, but it's had a kind of a, a reverse effect. Um, the example was in the LGBT community that um, they had talked about how like, um, uh, what am I, I'm trying to think of like matchmaking services oh, like match.com, like, yeah. right? Like, I was going to say Tinder. Like, Tinder, <laughs> Tinder, I think, yeah, Grindr, Grindr. There, there's a bunch of them out there, right? Um, that uh, that technology has allowed um, people to find other people, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a safe way, right? Right. Um, but back to your point, your data is all online, and there have been cases where, um, like, people have acted maliciously mm-hmm. and have sought out, um, you know, through hate, oh, have wow. sought out people and have, um, you know, just uh, found ways to meet with those people and then um, do some not good things. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that, you know, bringing it back to like a more of a university context, like how do we ensure that, you know, um, we're, we're deploying, we're implementing technology in a way that ensures that people are safe. And I think we're still, we're continuing to learn how to do that. Right. Yeah, I think that that's, yeah, that's a good point. And it makes me think of the movie Gattaca too. Oh, just yeah. Like, you know, you can kind of become this other person because you have all their data and information. And um, I'm going to go mezzo and then I'll go it's micro, but not saying micro is a 
it's not important, meaning that it's relevant. Um, I heard a story about um, there's a new pr- method, new something type of surgery that um, is supposed to combat blindness by um, addressing issues in someone's DNA. Mm. And so I think about the algorithm and about the Human Genome Project that is making something like that possible. And they had the first surgery surgery on someone um, and they expect in two to three months that their blindness is going to be gone. Oh, wow. And that's amazing. Yeah. And that's technology and that's data and that's algorithms. And that's and so I think it's important to remember that piece mm. of it and the potential of it yeah. um, and the good that it is doing in the yeah. world. And then also I think about... Um, three years ago, um, when we had a change of administration, there was a lot of concern from students. Like they vocalized about, like, you're collecting my data, you know where I am. Um, there are students who don't feel safe. Um, and I think that that's something we we need to always be aware of and we always need to be thinking about in terms of the unconscious bias that happens, but then also the data that's collected and who it could possibly be used by and for what end mm-hmm. or to what end. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's the kind of the AI component and the machine learning component where if you collect data, you can answer questions or you can right. you can put it into. So that's really where I think the coming back to your first question about social justice or that lens of um, keeping people safe and putting humans first mm-hmm. um, and then having the data support the the safety and the well-being and the progress of humans um, is is important. But I think about that a lot. And people are like, oh, do you work with big data? No, we, we don't, at least in, in our area. People think the data that we're doing is big data. We, we don't. I mean, we're running general statistics and things like that. Um, there's probably a little bit more uh, potential there that we are coming up too, as we are moving towards cloud-based data stores and things like that. Um, but we're, we're doing a lot right now in the conversations around governance and the conversations around securing the platforms and this, the conversations around our network um, around the state to keep people mm-hmm. safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good thought. I'm glad you brought that up about um, the surgery piece and that this person, whomever they could be cured of blindness in two to three months it's this it's being able to hold multiple truths right and multiple um multiple experiences on the same valid plane right like to know that people are utilizing technology in ways that pushes our our wildest dreams into future right realities Mm -hmm. and how can we continue to either be safe or um let folks know of ways that they can they can be safe around data mm-hmm. because those things aren't maybe hand in hand, but they are at least on the same plane. And people have choices. I mean, t- a lot of people have choices and um, maybe they're surrendering some of those choices unknowingly. And so mm-hmm. I think it is up to us to be very transparent with our yeah. students and with our mm-hmm. faculty and employees about what data is collected. And this, you said that we're, you don't have editing, so I don't know if this is going to bite me, but I, I do think <laughs> it's important that um, that we have some transparency around the data that's collected and how it's used. Because I think some people don't know and I think it's important that they at least have the opportunity to learn. And I think some people think it's far worse than it is. Mm. Um, and I also think mm. that that's important yeah. um, because we collect data, for example, on uh, uses of certain reports. We, we know who, who sees a report. Well, we're really busy. We're not going to go like right. thumb through <laughs> that to find it. It's, a, it's for auditing purposes. It's a security measure, but it's not something that someone is, you know, actively going and mining on right. a regular basis like 
no. we got stuff to do here. Like, <laughs> yeah. Can, can I add something yeah, to this? Course. You know, on the, there's this point of safety and security. So, so just last week, uh, we had our student success symposium here mm. on campus here in, in, in Corvallis, and they um, they aired a film called Unlikely. And oh, yeah. I, I really, I really enjoyed that film. And one of the things that that kind of that I I I got from that was wealth discrimination, mm. and how people that are wealthy generally have greater security, um, and those that that don't don't. And you know, some examples came to mind for me: um, people who are wealthy have better credit cards with fraud protection. Mm. They have um, they can get fraud identity insurance. They might have you know, more expensive Apple products that have biometrics and, you know, as opposed to other alternative technologies that don't have that sort of same state-of-the-art security. Um, they might shop at stores like Neiman Marcus versus Target. Target and TJ Maxx recently had some security breaches. You know, there's a lot of people that shop at those stores. Maybe yeah. their, you know, their their levels of, uh, of security are not as great as some of the more expensive stores. And so, it, you know, again, it made me think that as a university that we need to continuously be thinking about how we can, um, um, you know, work against wealth discrimination and yeah. ensure that we're, um, yeah, that we're working towards safety and security that's equitable for all. Yeah. Your thoughts have um, led me to think a little bit more of how um, how can technology and, and the intersection of, of social justice work a little bit more at Oregon State. Like I'm hearing some pieces of, of specifically the transparency piece, um, talking about how do we how do we help our students, faculty, staff who um, maybe do not have that that status of wealth be able to navigate the university a little bit better. Like what are the where are the areas that and the oh, excuse me, where are the areas where OSU can be a little bit better in those areas? Are you, are you asking us what are the areas that OSU could be better? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll step back first and then we give Scott some time. You're going to give some good you're examples. You're going to have me think about that? Yeah, you go ahead and think about that. The thing, <laughs> the thing, the thing that, that brought up for me is how we can frame what we do, whatever it is, in a way that's more grounded in our values, a way that's more connected to our land grant mission. I mean, we're here to serve the the people and the space of Oregon. And I think as we do that, technology is going to only continue to be a very integral part of that. And that responsibility, I think, is what draws a lot of people to the institution. And right now, I'm just going to talk, we'll give you time. Um, the in some technology spheres and in growing number of technology spheres, I'm in the uh, Educause Young Professional Advisory Council, and we have a huge emphasis on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And what we've talked about with the CIO of the organization is that um, it, it can't separate out the the efforts. You can't say like, oh, we're going to do a DEI initiative and we're going to have a committee for webinars. Like, no, it's it's all infused. Right. And so. I think when it comes to the intersection of technology and social justice, we just need to be thinking of it more upfront. Mm. Um, so that this the fact that there is in the last two years now a space for diversity of voice in an organization that is very historically sort of dominated by a, a by a older white male mm -hmm. culture. I mean, that's what technology and 
that sphere really is. And you look on our campus and we have our new CIO is a woman of color. And so I see these changes happening. And as they happen, as long as we are continuing to make a point to say we're thinking of social justice first, we're thinking of our people first, we're thinking of these these rights and these securities and these sort of power issues up front, um, I think we'll be better off. Because um, AI is exciting. Virtual reality is exciting. Mm -hmm. These things are exciting, but they can be used for good. Um, and I think if we are conscientious about it and we keep each other in check, um, that they will be. Yeah. I also want to add to that <clears throat> the thought of um, how we, how we in that transparency vein, um, utilize language in that. Mm -hmm. Like, how are we describing the work that you all do in a way that everyone can understand. Does that make sense? Is mm. like I think about it when I when um, we try to use way too much academic language in social <laughs> justice education, and that knowing that not all of our um, not all the people who uh, flock to social justice um, are are going to understand fully that that language, and nor should we always be utilizing that those keywords, those as Jeff Kinney likes to say, his fifteen dollar words. Um, in every conversation that we have when we're trying to change uh, the future, when we're trying to transform it, right? And so um, in the name of transparency, making sure that we're also thinking about how we are bringing this to multiple people. And I'm not just thinking about bilingual or, or thinking of other languages, I'm thinking of how we even describe it um, to, to the president mm -hmm. and describe it to a student. There may be some language changes, but the it shouldn't change the meaning. Yeah. Oh gosh, that's oh go ahead, Mom. Oh yeah, no, I have go for it. Right, what you're saying, and there's actually um, some people on campus here that are doing work in that sphere. Um, I was thinking of Dr. Margaret Burnett over in um, engineering, and she uh, and her wonderful grad students. We've worked with them. Uh, James Thomas in our group is our human computer interaction oh, cool. um, analyst, um, and he's worked with her specifically on gender mag. Oh yes, yes, yes. Um, I was like, the, why is this name familiar? Yeah, yes. Gender mag and uh, putting software through that, putting user experiences through there to make sure that we are developing things with the broadest users in mind and in ways that people can can use them effectively. So that's a concrete thing that we're doing here that I think we should do more of, yeah. um, that user experience piece. Um, and then this isn't necessarily someone here that wrote this, but I know there are um, individuals in um, the what is statistics department that are also thinking along the lines of uh, Kathy O'Neill wrote a book, Weapons of Math Destruction. Oh. And so that book is really gets at the how are we using these numbers and the stories that they're telling and, and what are the biases that are going to be infiltrated based on how we're doing that. And so when we get asked about statistics or metrics, um, I, I really think we could do that a little yeah. bit better yeah. and a little bit more uh, inclusively or expansively could be another way to put it. Yeah. Um, that's great. <laughs> I'm glad that you brought up, uh, Dr. Burnett. Um, thinking about like jargon and, and mm -hmm. words and how we communicate about technology, I am always thinking about that. So, um, not so much in working with our, um, our IT professionals across campus, since most of them know what some of these terms mean, but you know, the, typically when you think of IT, you think about the acronyms and the jargon, right? Yeah, like right. what the heck is that person trying to say? Right. <laughs> um, but there's a big part of my work too that's working with IT partners. It's working with faculty, right. you know, and and trying to understand, you know, what are their needs, what are their their business needs, quote unquote, and then how can we figure out how technology can be used to to support that. And um, 
And so the, it's it's constantly thinking about how do I communicate how this happens within layman's terms, within within their context, right? right? And I I think too that just the the creation of positions like mums and mine, and 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 hopefully this comes out here in, in the podcast that you know we're not mum and I are, aren't speaking with a lot of jargon no. and acronyms. And mm-hmm. Andrea likes to think of mum and I and, and a few others as sort of like her senior human officers, <laughs> chief senior human officers. Um, and so that, title. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and so I I think too that there um, that that there's a sensitivity to ensuring that we're communicating effectively, and and also I think it's a sort of a sign of the times maybe that um, that IT has people in positions like Mum and I that um, aren't like you know in deep in the systems administration and in deep in IT, but we know it well enough to be able to speak with that side of the house as well as people that are not as maybe as technologically savvy. Yeah. Well, I think about it, um, the, the work that the two of you do, and like the other reason why I thought you'd be great to talk about this specifically on the podcast is, is because I know you have that human relation connection and connected to the work in IT. And also, though it's been some years, you've done the unconference, and I feel like that um, that was really a strong connection between what you just named. And so, um, like... I don't think I've told you this, Mom, but Scott knows because I've been chatting with him about it for a while now about doing a DEI on conference nice. um, next term. And so it's going to be very cozy and intimate because <laughs> it's not going to be like, I mean, the podcast will know, so maybe you can come. But um, it's really I, what I really appreciate and wish I would have been able to come when you all were having it is to have that conversation with folks who are utilizing technology in so many different ways and wanting the chance to really dialogue about it to really talk about it in different ways and um not feel like there's a there's a solid agenda it could go in any direction right as long as we're talking really about connections and that's what i'm hoping for for the the dei on conference is to be able to talk to the folks who who do diversity equity and inclusion work in their jobs Mm -hmm. and how we can do a a better job of connecting with Mm -hmm. each other um we always talk about how we work in silos like that is the, if we talk about jargon and phrases, mm. that is the phrase of Oregon State. Um, and we always try to think of ways to, to dig out of those pieces. So I really appreciate the two of you um, having that, having those unconferences and really building a framework that I can utilize from <laughs> <laughs> for, for the future. So. And what a cool juxtaposition to the conversation on technology to have, you know, a space where it is really about listening and speaking intentionally and being disconnected mm-hmm. from technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, the even though there was a, a recording or a documentation of the information that came out of the Young Conference, um, it's really about sitting face-to-face and having a conversation and asking questions and, and kind of, you know, doing the work in the moment right. of getting it through. And so that's, that's exciting. And I think just the same way that... Um, so I, this is something I probably should have mentioned when about things people don't know. I took um, auto shop in high school. Oh, really? And it was a, a nice juxta, juxtaposition to like AP math, right? Yeah. And it's like I had all these things and it's like, oh, what do I need to do something with my hands? It's like mm. sometimes I need to do something face to face. Yeah. And, and I think that um, balance doesn't exist. <laughs> That's my personal opinion. But centering does. Yeah. And sort of that centering around 
the, the humanity that we share, I think it's only when we elevate our work to that space that it's something that we can come back to every day and have um, kind of the energy and momentum to, to keep pushing through the things that are a little bit more mundane or the things that are hard. It's really when it's connected to that bigger thing. And I think Unconference is a great way mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a long, long way to say, like, <laughs> that's super exciting. And I hope that you have a wonderful Unconference. You, you know, and, and I'm, I'm wondering how you might, uh, maybe we could even brainstorm with you some ways that you could utilize technology to open that Unconference up. So um, unconferences, as, as the three of us know, are really great ways to get um, information and get thoughts and ideas mm -hmm. in from a lot of different people. Now that we have technology like Zoom where you can see mm. people and it's not just like a phone conference, you can see facial expression, you can pick up on body language. Right. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's something uh, something. That's there. true. That, yeah. that could be. And I, I like the thought of um, how to bring technology into that, into that space specifically because one thing I was thinking about um, – Throughout this conversation, and uh, maybe a way to wrap up before we go into the lightning round, is how can we really center marginalized experiences, voices within the technology and the work um, that is done at Oregon State? I think we're trying to do it, obviously, in the office. Um, but I think centering voices that we do not hear from often because of the boundaries and structures in place um, allows for, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it really opens up the world that we hope um, to achieve. Mm -hmm. Because they're, they're folks, those are folks who are experiencing the world in the most limited of ways. Mm -hmm. um, and centering those voices, centering those experiences allows them to think, allows them to let us know what they've always thought and what they've always thought that this could be, but we haven't seen it yet because we don't experience it. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's giving me so, like, thank you. That's a awesome question. And I'm going to go back to the first sort of definition of the absence of bias of voice mm -hmm. is social justice. And I think about the gaps in terms of the, um, the voice of um, a diverse representation of students of humans in the technology space. And some of that, if you look back to the 80s, um, at one point, there was sort of this split of um, who was in computer science. And at one point, there were about 40% of computer science majors were women. And then in the 80s, there was a lot of, this is in like other podcasts too, listen to um <laughs> there was this big push for like video games and the, how they're boy toys and mm. all these things and then all of a sudden it dipped to like 12 percent were women and then it became sort of this this guy area and so there's this big push to have women in stem and women coders and girl right. coders and um, i have a couple friends that actually work in that space encouraging more of that especially in um, communities that are traditionally marginalized or less represented. And so I think part of it is the pipeline and, and, and that piece, but then also the invitation. I used to work in um, volunteer work, and one of the things at orientation they told us is, you know, the number one reason people don't show up is that they didn't get asked. Mm. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, where my head was, I was, that's exactly where I was thinking about is creating opportunities so you get those voices. Yeah. Oh. Well, we're going to leave it for there today. We could honestly talk more about this. I think we could. Yeah. We totally could, but I also want to make sure we get to the lightning round, and um, we have to have to get out of here soon. I don't think Nate wants to hang out here all day. So. We're fun, Nate. <laughs> He's like totally nice. Um, so 
as most people who have listened to the podcast know, I usually know like some things in common <clears throat> that don't involve what we've just been talking about about my guest. I failed this time <laughs> because somebody deactivated their Facebook account um, last night. Last night, <laughs> and somebody doesn't utilize their Facebook account as much. I really should have went to Instagram, but that's fine. Do you have Instagram, Mom? Um, it's kind of private. There, like Usually. pictures of bugs in nature. <laughs> that sounds fun. Yeah, I like taking pictures of bugs. This is, see, I should have wrote this down. <laughs> like, favorite bugs. Okay. So I, I decided to just ask, like, you know, it'll be for, a free for all of your favorites. And so we'll see if we have any matches. You may not. I did find out uh, before we started recording that both of them have a love of travel and that they've traveled to other countries. And so um, my first question is the favorite, your favorite place that you've ever traveled to. Oh. Wow, oh there's a there's. I know there's I, like can a multiple. Can I jump in first? You please do. Month? Okay, multiple. there's a lot of places I know. that I have that have been favorites. Um, What's the first one that comes to the mind? The first one that comes to mind is Chartres Cathedral in France. Ooh. I have a, a pretty serious love of Gothic architecture, and I studied humanities my first year in college, and I just discovered that cathedral. And I said one day I've got to visit it. And after I finished my undergrad, I uh, went out and toured Europe, um, and saw Chart and it was just it was just an amazing experience being in front of that cathedral. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I only get one? Yes, you only get one. Okay. The first one that comes up. The tide. Um okay. The first <laughs> one that comes up is uh, a little refugio in the Italian Alps. So my husband and I went to uh, Italy a couple years ago and we went to this town called Madonna di Compiglio and uh, we hiked up the um, yeah we hiked in the Alps and it was supposed to be this kind of pleasant fall day and it, there was a blizzard oh no and we were up on the mountain anyway so we went <laughs> and um, he was in uh, Nikes oh like, no and I was in these uh, hand me down shoes that were apparently previously owned by a dog owner and so they smelled like wet dog and we hiked all day to get to this little <laughs> refugio and we saw the most incredible sunset on top of this mountain oh, and we slept in bunk beds next to some very large German men. Wow. I hope the sunset was worth it. It was so okay. good. The food was good too. Bro. Okay, good. <laughs> oh my goodness. I have never traveled outside of North America, so I don't have like a favorite, like abroad place. Um, but I, yeah, I don't. I don't How about in North America? North American yeah. place. Uh, let's see. Some stunning places. I mean, there are some stunning places. Does not mean I've been to them. I usually only travel for work or to go home to Oklahoma. So um, I'd probably have to say Manhattan because I've spent the most time there. Um, When I was in graduate school at UMass, you could just easily take the bus three hours or a train three hours to to get into the city. And so, and I had friends who lived there. And so, like Soho all the way up to Washington Heights is just like great. Great space. I haven't been there in like eight years, but mm. I would go back in a minute mm. and just so cool. enjoy it. So very cool. Um, favorite comfort food? Milkshakes. Nice. Like a fla- certain flavor or just any? Uh, kind of any. Yeah. All right. Milkshakes. I don't know that I have a favorite comfort food. Maybe tater tots. Ooh, tater tots sounds really good. 
Yeah, I my favorite comfort food um, would be my mother's pork chops if I can get them. But since I cannot, um, because she would have to come and cook them, I would probably say just like a good all-American cheeseburger that's medium well. Not mm. medium well, medium. Medium. I can't handle hockey pucks. <laughs> well, see, and I don't have dairy anymore, so I've been doing like, oh. you know, vegan ones. Not as good. Honestly. I was like, are they good? <laughs> They're good. They're good. <laughs> but like if I think about like happy place. Yeah. You're like, that's it. <laughs> My stomach just growled at me because I talked about food. Sorry. I'll feed you in a minute. Um, favorite movie to watch when you're sick? My guilty pleasure are like teen flicks, oh. <laughs> and I've started the new it. like Netflix ones because oh my like gosh, all the boys they're, I ever loved. They're so adorable. I haven't watched any adorable. of them, but they're like the trailers are just like oh, I would kind of always watch be you. my maybe like those that kind of thing. Like that is what I watch when I'm sick. Yeah, <laughs> Breakfast Club. That, I could totally that, yeah. see that with you. Okay, yeah. the last scene in Breakfast Club. Yeah. my high school. Really? really? Yeah, the one he's like walking across the field. Yeah, my yeah. high school's football field. That's. Awesome. Oh, yeah. That's... And it was filmed at a high school nearby that had been shut down and that they converted into um, like a police department. <laughs> that is awesome. That's hilarious. Wow. Uh, what's my favorite movie to watch when I'm sick? Uh, I'll probably Nightmare Before Christmas, which is my favorite movie. One of my favorite movies. I have a, like a top list, but I can totally watch that anytime. But specifically when I'm sick, it's like even better. Um. <laughs> Favorite song to dance to when no one's watching, and I'm totally looking at Scott for this. Oh yeah, so so just just a, a quick little story before I, I I answer that that question. So before I got into IT, my first career was in dance. So I was a professional hip hop, classical, contemporary ballet dancer. Um, my favorite song to dance to is "Miss You Much" by Janet Jackson. <laughs> you know it's gonna be a miss. A and Janet I know Jackson all the song. choreography. <laughs> One day that's gonna be. More than just an Instagram video. <laughs> I can't wait. If I ever find out that you're on stage, Scott, you better let us know. Oh, yeah, yeah please. We'll, we'll we'll get a dance party together one of these yes, days. That yeah. sounds a little intimidating, but still fun. Oh, it's all about fun. <laughs> yeah. It's totally fun. Um, I don't know. Lately, I've been dancing to uh, Can't Stop the Feeling with my infant child. <laughs> we dance when she's like been sitting too long and looks kind of bored. I'm like, dance time. Right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm laughing because my favorite song right now is called The Other Side, and it's by uh, Justin Timberlake. Oh, really? It's from the Trolls soundtrack. It's from the new Trolls movie. Oh, nice. There's a, like, have you ever seen Trolls? I haven't seen it, but I know oh, the song. Oh, my gosh. Like, you need Trolls to, is a great Trolls movie. Trolls is a great movie. I was just talking about this with a colleague Legit. the other day. <laughs> like, the first one, it just has so many great, they just do so many great covers of so many mm-hmm. great pop songs. And, like, Trolls World Tour is going to cover more genres. And so I'm just like... Well, the story's cute, too. Yeah, the story's cute, too. And, like, it's just fantastic. And so I did Can't Stop the Feeling for a drag show once uh, at Oregon State. And so, yeah, but this other one, this new song, yeah, it has me jamming out pretty hard. So Good songs. Yes, I love that. Um, We'll stick with the song theme for a moment. What's a favorite song to sing in the car? Oh wow! <laughs> I wish you could so see many. Mom's face. There's right so now. many favorite song to sing in the car. Um, okay, how about okay. what's the last one you sing? Okay, how about that? Okay, the, this might sound kind of funny, but um, I would say it's "Don't Mind" by Mary J. Blige. Ooh, I don't have an answer. You don't sing in the car? I do, but I, 
Like, I'd have to look at my phone to see what Spotify has. <laughs> Fair like, enough. I don't really remember. I'm not trying to dodge no, no, the no. question. <laughs> you just, like, mindlessly, like, just... I just put on a shuffle. I made a little, like, oldies playlist. Yeah. That sometimes I'll play in the car. It's, um... Yeah, I don't know. Some sort of oldie song. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, technically, I walked here today, so like, I don't, I didn't, I didn't put the headphones on, but I have a, <laughs> I have a playlist on Spotify that says songs I I can sing. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably something from there, but I would have to say it, um, Luther Vandross, like, um, yeah, a there's great. a couple of Luther songs that I really enjoy singing, specifically Creepin'. Uh, superstar and um, oh gosh why did I just blank on it oh there's a third one that I just blanked on what it is but like yeah I love me some miss me some Luther I can't sing like Luther let's be clear about this nobody can sing nobody can sing like Luther but I I definitely try (laughs) it's like love died when he passed away pretty much oh he's such a like an amazing just talented individual so um, I'll do a couple more. Let's see. Favorite place to relax? A hammock on the beach. I was going to say, that's really? exactly oh the same thing. We found one. We found one. Yes. <laughs> hammock on the beach. Hammock Bar on the beach. With a book. Yep. Nice. Yeah. Mine is neither one of those. <laughs> <I'm definitely laughs> but it, it definitely involves like, uh, it usually involves a blanket and a spot on the couch. Like I love the couches where it's a L shape and mm-hmm. I dick that corner. And so nice. just me in the corner mm-hmm. and just like, it's like that's a, a good spot. Yeah. It's like you're being hugged by a teddy bear. Exactly. It's so nice. So that's my favorite place to relax. All right. I'm going to do two more. Favorite restaurant in Corvallis. What's that? What's it called? It's, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a new one that I'm forgetting the name of the, the block that it's on. Is it downtown? It's downtown. It yeah, I think Piganola? it starts with an S. Oh, nope. Hmm. Is it that ramen place that I don't no, know? No, it's not a ramen place. It's like, um, uh, it's not, it's not cheap. And they got, they just Caster? opened like two. Yes. Caster. It start with an S. Why was I thinking S? It's Caster. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Caster is a good place. I really like going to Tarn Tip. I enjoy Tarn Tip. I still haven't been there. Really? Yeah. Randy, I would like to take you to Tarn Tip. Yes, yeah. Let's go I've for lunch great, sometime. I've heard great things about Tarn Tip. Um, my favorite, uh, talking about like having to choose one, uh, I'll go with Bellhop. So I really love Bellhop. I love that location. Um, the the head chef and owner there is fantastic. And so I just always get a good vibe going in there. So that's my favorite spot in Corvallis. Now, what about yeah. favorite restaurant? Not in Corvallis. It could be anywhere. If you want to stick to Oregon, that's fine. Hmm. Again, there's so many. Yeah. There's so many. I forget the name of it. It's in Berkeley. There's my friend took me there for my birthday. It's an autoimmune protocol friendly restaurant. And oh. for my birthday a couple of years ago, I was following the autoimmune paleo protocol to try to deal with some stuff. And I was just like kind of bummed because I couldn't eat anywhere, anything. And she took me to this place and it was so beautiful. Like the outside was just this like patio nature with like the fruit was growing off the trees and I could eat everything there. And it just, it was a really good experience and it was kind of a neat thing to do. So I I don't remember the name of it, Um, but it is in Berkeley 
is the only autoimmune paleo <laughs> friendly restaurant in the city. So find it. <laughs> That's a really tough one for me. I've been yeah. to so many. I don't know that I really have one favorite restaurant, actually. Yeah. One Sorry. that stands out. I don't fun. have. Yeah. yeah, I know. One that stands out. Um, um, you know, there's in, in Oakland. It's actually on the Oakland-Berkeley border. Uh, it's a it's a Mexican restaurant that's called Cactus, and they have these crispy chicken tacos that are just. Mm. I would go there probably like twice a week when I used to work at California College of the Arts. Nice. Yeah, that's what comes to mind. For okay. Me. Yeah. I mean, what first comes to mind for me is my parents' business. <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> We're awesome. talking about that, so it's just barbecue. So Dee's down home barbecue. My dad and brother um, own a food truck down in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And so anytime I get barbecue, I have them ship it. Like yeah. They cook it, freeze it, and ship it up to me overnight. It. Mm. So, and it's still good when it gets here. So, wow. Yeah. So that's my favorite restaurant outside of, of Corvallis. That sounds so, great. Yeah. That is so, amazing. And I have them ship um, at least once every six months or so. So, and I usually share. Because <laughs> like they always send so much, it's just like I can't eat all of this, and it'll go bad if like if I don't share it out with people. So like I'm serious, I'll make like little um, sandwich bags full, of just like because I usually just get brisket and bologna, and nobody like understands how good bologna is until they've had it, and then they can't not. I've had people tell me they've dreamed about it. So <laughs> yeah, Sarah Smith oh, really? tells me she dreams about oh. it. And I'm just like I'll make sure you get some. But anyways, so that's that's all I have, really. It's been really great to connect with the two of you on a, on a Monday Brady. morning. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much for this. this so um, I think we'll have a podcast in April. Um, we're about to go off for two weeks, and um, then we'll be back uh, next term uh, for the last three podcast episodes of the year it's been our first year with the podcast uh, we'll see what happens with it next year but until then um, thanks again to mom and scott for being my guest and you all have a great week okay bye